Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion, heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK Japan, Radio Havana Cuba, and Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. Elections in Australia resulted in many changes in leadership. A court in Japan agreed with citizens who want to keep a nuclear power plant from coming back online. The Chinese foreign minister met with 10 Pacific Island nations on trade and security, but no agreements were reached. Russia reacted sharply with new U.S. plans to give Ukraine longer-range missiles, saying that it will not improve the chances of negotiations to end the conflict in Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said that there are many months of conflict in the future. The Canadian Prime Minister has proposed new laws to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. The World Meteorological Organization said that there is a 50% chance that the average global temperature will reach the critical threshold by 2026. NHK Japan Australia has sworn in a new cabinet led by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, whose Labour Party beat the Conservative coalition in a general election last month. The cabinet's membership reflects the government's goal of promoting diversity. There are a total of 23 new cabinet members. They include 10 women, which is about 43 percent, the highest ever. Albanese appointed an Aboriginal woman as Indigenous Australians Minister and a Muslim woman as Youth Minister. A Japanese court says the offline Tomari nuclear plant in the northern prefecture of Hokkaido cannot be brought back into operation. The judge points to poor tsunami safety standards in what's the first ruling of its kind. More than 1,200 people have filed lawsuits against operator Hokkaido Electric Power Company since 2011. They demanded all three reactors be banned from operating and decommissioned. In Tuesday's ruling, the presiding judge said tsunami of at least 12 meters are predicted to hit the plant in a major earthquake. And he said the operator failed to prove the facility would not suffer problems such as liquefaction. As a local, I'm overjoyed. The refusal to allow operations means the plant will not restart until even later. This is the first step toward realizing our goal. No nuclear plants in Hokkaido. All of Japan's nuclear reactors were halted following the March 2011 disaster in Fukushima. Operators who want to restart theirs must meet stricter regulations. Hokkaido Electric says it plans to appeal the ruling. 
China's foreign minister has met in Fiji with its Pacific Island counterparts, but couldn't persuade them to sign up to a trade and security pact. Wang Yi held talks on Monday with leaders from 10 Pacific nations. He said China will maintain its support for the region in a wide range of fields. Chinese President Xi Jinping said in a written address, Beijing wants to work with the country is to build a community with a common future. China hopes to seal a deal with the island nations on a major initiative covering trade, security and other areas. But a communique was reportedly shelved due to a lack of thorough discussions. Wang said China will continue to help build infrastructure and fight climate change in the Pacific. And he said Beijing will always stand together with small and medium-sized countries. Don't be too anxious and don't be too nervous because the common development and prosperity of China and all the other developing countries will only mean greater harmony, greater justice and greater progress for the whole world. Fiji's Prime Minister Josiah Vorenge Bainimarama said at a news conference later in the day, consensus among countries is more important than anything else if such an agreement is to be reached. He suggested there were differences of opinion over the plan. Russia is biting back at the United States for its decision to supply Ukraine with more advanced weapons. It says the move increases the risk of drawing the U.S. into a direct confrontation. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov told state-run media Washington's behavior is unprecedented and dangerous. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Piskov says the U.S. is purposefully and diligently adding fuel to the fire. He says supplying weapons would not encourage Ukraine's leadership to resume stalled peace talks. The United States says it's sending this rocket system to Ukraine as part of a new $700 million aid package. It has a range of about 80 kilometers, but American officials say Ukraine has promised not to fire the weapon into Russian territory. Russia is is accusing the Americans of pouring fuel on the fire by supplying advanced rockets to Ukraine. But the U.S. Secretary of State says the Ukrainians need the weapons to defend themselves. We can't predict um, how this is going to play out, when this is going to play out. Uh, As best we can assess right now, um, we are still looking at many months of conflict. Antony Blinken hosted NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in Washington. They discussed the Americans' $700 million weapons package and bids by Sweden and Finland to join the alliance. Their applications have run into opposition from Turkish leaders. Stoltenberg says he'll meet with delegates from all three countries. We have to address the security concerns of all allies, and I'm confident that we will find a united way forward. Stoltenberg says he wants to end the standoff before NATO leaders meet later this month at a summit in Madrid. People in Canada could soon find it much harder to obtain a handgun. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has proposed a series of tougher laws just days after a mass shooting at an elementary school in the United States. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. Another provision calls for revoking the firearms licenses of people involved in acts of domestic violence. 
The government also says it will buy back weapons with more lethal capabilities. Trudeau described the measures as some of the strongest in Canadian history. The UN Weather Agency says there is nearly a 50% chance the average global temperature will hit a critical threshold in the next five years. Officials say it could temporarily reach 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The report from the World Meteorological Organization says there is a 48% chance of reaching that mark by 2026. The likelihood was close to zero in 2015. The WMO says the global average last year was 1.1 degrees above the pre-industrial baseline. 1.5 is considered the threshold for the impacts of climate change to spread irreversibly. Meanwhile, a new report says the frequency of torrential downpours in Japan has more than doubled in the past 45 years. The Meteorological Research Institute looked at changes in precipitation patterns around the country. It focused on heavy rainfall in incidents of 130 millimeters or more for a period of three hours. In 2020, Japan recorded over 67 of the events. That's more than twice the number in 1976. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165. We're on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. The president of Honduras condemned the assassination of environmental prosecutor Karen Almaderas last Friday. In Brazil, massive floods and landslides left over 100 people dead. Then a viewpoint on the significant primary presidential election in Colombia which will lead to a June 19th runoff between leftist former guerrilla Gustavo Petro and wealthy businessman Rodolfo Hernandez. Colombia has not had a progressive government in 60 years. Tens of thousands of flag-waving ultranationalist Israelis marched near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, with some storming the compound. Dozens of Palestinians were arrested and 165 were injured. Radio Havana, Cuba. The president of Honduras, Xiomara Castro, condemned on Tuesday the murder of environmental prosecutor Karen Almendares, which occurred over the weekend, and assured that the masterminds and material perpetrators of the crime will not go unpunished. In a message disseminated through the social network Twitter, the head of state affirmed that the gangs of hired killers continue to operate and the people expect justice and results from the state intelligence services. The United Nations representative in Honduras, Alice Sheikh Ford, joined the repudiation of the event and expressed through Twitter, We condemn the murder of the Honduran prosecutor Karen Almendares, and I stand in solidarity with her family and friends. It is of vital importance to stop the violent situation that the country is going through and to provide justice. The 39-year-old prosecutor was shot dead at the gate of her home in the neighborhood of El Chahuite, in the city of Nacaome, in the south, as she was returning from a gymnasium. The same day, she had participated in an operation by the Police Investigations Directorate and the National Director of Roads and Transport, which was recorded in an image disseminated through social networks. 
In Brazil, at least 106 people are confirmed dead, with many more missing, due to massive floods and landslides caused by heavy rains in the northeastern state of Pernambuco. Poor communities living in favelas in the city of Recife were among the most impacted, with landslides wiping away homes built on hillsides. Similar disasters have been recently reported in the mountains of Rio de Janeiro and other regions of Brazil, as the country experiences more severe rainfall caused by the climate crisis. The number of municipalities that had declared an emergency situation in Pernambuco rose to 24 on Tuesday, according to Fola de Sao Paulo. The natural disaster has also forced nearly 6,200 people out of their homes, the newspaper said. Scientists have said climate change drives heavier rainfall, increasing changes of flooding and landslides. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, a United Nations body tasked with assessing the science related to climate change, has labeled Recife as one of the most vulnerable metropolitan areas in the world. Low-lying coasts in several Latin American countries and large cities, for example Buenos Aires, Rio de Janeiro and Recife, are among the most vulnerable to climate variability and extreme hydrometeorological events such as rain and windstorms and subtropical and tropical cyclones like hurricanes in their associated storm surges, the IPCC said in a 2007 report. On Sunday, May the 29th, Colombians went to the polls in one of the most significant elections in the country's history. Leftist candidate Gustavo Petro and his running mate, Afro-Colombian environmental and human rights activist Francia Marquez of the left-wing Pacto Histórico or Historic Pact, convincingly won the first round with 40.32% of the vote to beat out 77-year-old millionaire and right-wing populist candidate Rodolfo Hernández of the Liga de Gobernantes Anticorrupción, who garnered 28.15%. The election now moves to a runoff between the two leading candidates. Zoe Alexander of People's Dispatch explains just why these elections are so important and historic. This is the first time in 60 years and in, in many, many decades that a progressive ticket has an actual chance of winning Colombian elections. Colombia was one of the countries where elites very early on saw that it was important, whether they were conservative, whether they were liberal, they had to make a pact and they made a pact. It was called the National Pact. So it was made in the 60s to basically bar any sort of people-centered, people-focused, working-class possibility from arriving to office. This national pact that was made between conservative and liberal elites um, was made after 10 years of the violence, the uprising that happened following the assassination of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, where the liberals and conservatives were fighting each other. And in order to stop, you know, the actual working class aspirations from making its way to the halls of power in Colombia, they created this pact. And of course, the pact didn't last until today. But in some senses, it really has, because the country, unlike many of its neighbors, unlike many in the region, has never been ruled by any sort of progressive government. It has been ruled by governments that have favored the U.S. interest in the region. It is home to seven U.S. military bases. It has some of the most lenient laws regarding mineral extraction, oil extraction, very unfavorable policies for its large peasant population, a country with extremely lenient labor laws um, where workers have essentially no rights, a privatized health care system, privatized higher education. And this is precisely due to this 
dominance of neoliberal conservative politics in Colombia. The progressive ticket of Pedro Marquez, recent social unrest and popular mobilizations also saw a record turnout on Sunday's elections, with around 54% of those eligible to vote casting their ballots. The same reality has also been accompanied by increasing violence by the state and paramilitary groups, with candidates even facing threats to their lives. Many feared that election day would be compromised by acts of violence. However, voting went ahead without any major incidents. So, Gustavo Petro and Rodolfo Hernández will now move to a runoff for their presidency next June 19th. The hope is that the leftist candidate will see a repeat of his win in the first round to bring a new era of progressive politics to Colombia, with a program based on social justice, gender equality, environmental protection and sustainable national development. Polls indicate that this will likely be the case, but nothing is certain until voting day especially as threats of violence and disruption continue and as other right and centre-right wing groups pledge their allegiance to Hernandez. So, will Colombia be the next Latin American country to join the resurgent pink tide sweeping the region? We'll find out on June the 19th. For Radio Havana Cuba, I'm Natalie Howard. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Tayyeh has described attacks by far-right Israelis in occupied East Jerusalem as aggression which crossed all red lines. Tens of thousands of flag-waving, ultranationalist Israelists raided the Muslim quarter of the old city on Sunday during the so-called flag march. The provocative march that took place in and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound is meant to celebrate the occupation and subsequent annexation of East Jerusalem in 1967, a move that has not been recognized by the international community. Some Jewish groups also stormed the Al-Aqsa compound, raising fears among Palestinians that it was an attempt to change the status quo at Islam's third holiest site. Jewish prayers are prohibited at the 35-acre, 14-hectare compound known to Muslims as Al-Haram al-Sharif of the Noble Sanctuary. Jews call it the Temple Mount. Israel yesterday has crossed all red lines on international treaties with its repeated aggression against Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. It attempts to impose a reality that doesn't align with the historical status quo of Al-Aqsa Mosque, Shtayeh said on Monday. Dozens of Palestinians were arrested across occupied East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank a day earlier, where protests to decry the march erupted, while more than 165 suffered injuries ranging from heavy tear gas inhalation to beatings and wounds from live rounds, as well as rubber-coated steel bullets. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at RadioHC.cu, but the podcasts are not up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6060 or 6165. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet. I apologize for the delay in some podcast getting out last week. I had failed to pay domain registration fees, but all is fixed now. 
We will conclude with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Mexican President Obrador banned the sale of e-cigarettes. Voters in Denmark backed a referendum to join the EU common defense policy. In Afghanistan, the Taliban have begun enforcing a ban on opium poppy cultivation. Poverty and drought-stricken farmers have not succeeded at establishing other crops to provide an income. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador has banned the sale of e-cigarettes. He says it was a lie to claim that e-cigarettes are a safe alternative to inhaling tobacco smoke. The government cited the World Health Organization, which considers e-cigarettes to be harmful. Voters in Denmark have overwhelmingly backed a referendum to join the European Union's common defense policy. More than two-thirds voted yes in Wednesday's poll on whether to abandon Denmark's long-held position of opting out of shared EU defense decisions. Russian aggression in Ukraine prompted that landmark ballot. The Taliban have begun enforcing a ban on poppy cultivation in Afghanistan. This is a significant turnaround from April when the Taliban told us that despite their official ban, they weren't enforcing it. Listen to what a senior minister said at the time. As you can see from our announcement, we said that for the moment we will not be taking action against farmers who planted opium this year. If we do, many farmers will suffer great problems. Afghanistan is facing a drought and a worsening economic situation. And poppy cultivation pays upwards of $300 a month for those harvesting opium from poppies. Opium also generates significant income for the Taliban and Afghanistan, nearly $3 billion in 2021, which is between 6% to 11% of the country's GDP. But all this also contributes to the world's drugs trade, and pressure is high to curb it. Armed Taliban fighters stand guard as a tractor tears up a field of poppies in Washir district in southern Helmand province. Afghanistan's rulers issued an edict in early April banning the cultivation of the poppy, the raw material required for opium, morphine and heroin production. Now the campaign is beginning. Afghan opium supplies over 80% of all users globally. The international community has been demanding more control of drug production since the Taliban retook the country last year. Our supreme leader has strictly ordered the ban on cultivating poppies, so those who are acting against it and continue to seed and cultivate it will be arrested and tried according to Sharia laws in relevant courts. For the farmers whose fields are being destroyed, it's a different story. They fear their livelihoods will be ruined at a time of growing poverty. We are facing drought and don't have big farming fields, so seeding and cultivating crops other than the opium poppy doesn't earn us anything. If we're not allowed to grow this crop, we won't earn anything. The new eradication campaign is mainly targeting those who planted their crops after the ban was announced. Others who planted earlier succeeded in harvesting. The ban comes as Afghanistan's economy has collapsed, cut off from international funding since the Taliban takeover. Most of the population struggles to afford food and the country has been suffering its worst drought in years. Around 80% of livelihoods in Afghanistan depend on agriculture. Farmers are forced to ask themselves what can replace the opium poppy as a source of income. There is no easy answer. 
And let's get more on this from journalist Ali Latifi, who joins me now from Kabul with more. Ali, we had been speaking about this back in April when the Taliban said they wouldn't be enforcing their poppy ban. But now it seems they are. What has changed? Well, the way they had framed it is that for people who had already planted, uh, they weren't going to get in their way. But what they were trying to do is keep from new crops and new harvests being planted. So this may be part of that saying that, you know, last year's crops will let them go and, you know, whatever happens with them happens with them. But we don't want any new crops. So what exactly are they hoping to achieve by cracking down? Uh, on poppy cultivation. Is it really a motivation to try and cut down the amount of opium that is produced in Afghanistan or there are other motivations here? I mean, I think there are several motivations. One thing, it's great PR, right? Again, it's the one thing that they could do. If they could actually accomplish it, it's something that they could do that the Republic was unable to do. You know, the Republic, with all of its funding, with all of its foreign backing, for 20 years was not able to eradicate the poppy cultivation. And if you're the Taliban, what you will say is one of the reasons the former government was heavily involved in the drug trade. You know, you had MPs, you had ministers, you had governors, you had police, all kinds of different officials and people connected to the government who were accused of having an alleged hand in the drug trade. Um, so what they can say now is, hey, because we've gotten rid of the corruption, now we can enforce this and get rid of this. Of course, again, ignoring the fact that they themselves also had a hand in it over the last 20 years. Um, so it comes down to good PR again. And it also could be something about their relationships with the neighbors, you know, because Iran and Pakistan, both of which they're very good with, even Turkey, also a nation that they're very good with, has complained a lot about drugs coming out of Afghanistan. Now, they don't talk about how their own drug mafias are involved and are, you know, making it possible. But it's another way of trying to bring assurance to regional neighbors that we're taking an issue seriously and that we're able to crack down on this. But the, but the root of the problem remains unaddressed, does it, doesn't it? I mean, that there really isn't a viable, profitable alternative right. to poppy cultivation in Afghanistan for thousands of poor farmers. I remember years ago uh, at a U.S. Embassy event where the U.S. Embassy basically threw up its hands and said our drug war in Afghanistan didn't succeed. You know, they said that no legal crop can ever compete with an illegal product. And it's true. When something is illegal, you know, the, the market dictates the price in, in, in ridiculous sorts of ways and in very exorbitant ways. And then in terms of alternatives, you need to lay the groundwork for those alternatives and you need to have the markets and the support for it. So the former government, they tried pomegranates, they tried saffron, they tried aloe vera, all sorts of things. But what was the problem was that they didn't have proper markets within the country to sell those products. And they also didn't have proper uh, agreements with other countries to make sure that, that our products made it out and were sold into the world market. So you would have farmers who were harvesting and who were planting these different crops and, and, and plants and things like that and vegetables, and yet they really didn't have anywhere to sell it. And there was so much regional competition in these markets. You have to support that market. So if you want if you want it to be pomegranates, then you have to make sure that Afghanistan's pomegranates are exported to the UAE, that they're exported to Turkey, that they're exported to other countries as well. That takes a lot of work that, again, the former republic couldn't do or didn't want to do. I don't know, either couldn't or didn't. And now, you know, the Taliban will have to try and do the same thing, because if you can't sell your alternative product, then you're going to go to the easiest thing, you know, the thing that you know you will absolutely be able to sell no matter what. Zali Latifi in Kabul. Thank you, Thank you so much.
Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.